The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Jessica Hall, retirement reporter for Market Watch. And today with me is Catherine Collinson, Chief Executive and President of the Transamerica Institute and the Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies. Welcome, Catherine, and thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jessica. It is so great to be here, and thank you for having me. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. We uh, we recently secured 2.0 passed and with many retirement provisions in there. And what, in your view, were the biggest and most important developments in that package? Uh, one of the things that I'm most excited about with regard to Secure 2.0 is all of the provisions in their totality. There is something for everyone in Secure 2.0. And for me, it's a perfect example of a situation in which the sum is greater than the whole of its parts. And to touch on some of the highlights of Secure 2.0, we'll have a new government matching contribution for low to moderate income retirement savers called the Savers Match. There are incentives to make it easier and more affordable than ever for small businesses to offer retirement benefits to their employees, which is the one area where we know retirement plan coverage is especially lacking. Uh, There's provisions to extend eligibility to part-time workers, many of whom work for an employer, but their employer only, and the employer has a plan, but they don't extend the eligibility to part-time workers. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also some exciting provisions that are going to help younger workers who are just getting started in their savings journey, as well as older workers who are nearing retirement. So what, given all of that, what still needs to be done from a public policy perspective to improve retirement outcomes? And And that is such an important question because our work is far from done. Uh, The SECURE Act very elegantly addresses the many issues and opportunities, especially within the context of the workplace and employer-sponsored retirement plans. But where it doesn't go are some of the broader issues associated with our retirement system. So number one, um, uh, ensuring Social Security is sustainable for future generations of retirees. Uh, Right now, I think we're all well aware that trust funds are estimated to be depleted by the year 2035 uh, unless Congress takes action. And it's really important that we inspire them to start doing that because any changes to benefits are going to require changes to people's individual retirement plans, how they plan for retirement, when they when they plan to retire. And we need a lot of leeway in, in terms of time. So the more time people have 
to adjust to any potential changes, the better off and better prepared they can be down the road when they're getting ready to retire. So that's one biggie. Uh, the others are likewise Medicare, addressing Medicare's funding issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and in our research and what we see is one of the greatest threats to retirement security is the high cost of long-term care services and supports. Mm -hmm. um, we really need to see innovation to help make long-term care services and supports uh, more as accessible and affordable for individuals in need of care. Okay. Um, can we shift to women, for, um, women in retirement? Women are often at great risk of retiring without enough money because of various issues such as family caregiving roles and gender pay gaps. What can be done to help women as far as public policy or societal changes to put them on a better financial footing? Also, here is an area where we also societally need to do add a, a lot more focus. In recent years, the topic has uh, come up and it's becoming part of the national dialogue, which is which is really important. But another area we have so much work to be done. And the first step is essentially creating widespread awareness of the retirement risks that women faced. You touched on the gender pay gap. Mm -hmm. There's also time in and out of the workforce. Both of these factors impact a woman's uh, lifetime earnings, her ability to save for retirement, her overall savings at retirement age. And there's also hidden costs in terms of vested retirement benefits, things like social security benefits, where women workers who are retired will receive lesser benefits from social security. Uh, and I did look up the numbers for this. I thought it was really important to help illustrate the gap. According to the social security fast facts and figures for 2022, the average monthly social security benefit for retired women is just $1,484 a month compared with men, $1,838 a month. That's almost a 20% gap. Mm -hmm. So the gender pay gap that we hear about in the workplace haunts women all the way into the retirement years. Um, and as we put also put it into context, $1,484 a month is not that much to live on. Um, and women are more likely than men to indicate, according to our team's research, to expect to rely prim primarily on social security and retirement. So raising awareness of the issues faced by women is absolutely critical. Addressing social security's uh, funding issues is an everybody issue, but it's one that's particularly important to women. And, and then to touch on the other stakeholders that you mentioned, um, employers play an invaluable role. And anything that employers can do to have a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplace that helps women, uh, you know, sorts, helps level the playing field for women in terms of uh, gender pay, as well as access to retirement benefits and other benefits can be really helpful. And employers who offer retirement benefits, uh, working with their plan providers, can also develop educational programs and resources tailored to women in the workplace. That also can be uh, extremely helpful. Well, one of the, that leads kind of into my next question, which is that ageism is often called the last acceptable prejudice or ism. And how big of an issue is it in the workforce um, when you're trying to tackle ageism? 
Um, in my mind, societally, even if we step back beyond the workforce and look at the big picture, mm -hmm. ageism is so pervasive and so mm -hmm. counterproductive to where we're at today. Uh, today, people have the potential to live longer than any other time in history. This is mm -hmm. amazing. This is a gift of extra time. Uh, and with many, with many expecting or planning, to live to 100 or older. Well, mm. this, this requires that we rethink our whole life course in terms of time in the workforce relative to retirement. Um, because it, it's, I don't, it's almost impossible to work for 30 years or 40 years and self-fund a retirement that could last another 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. So the ageism, um, we all have to be on the lookout for it. And I'll share a societal thing and then we'll uh, talk specifically about workplace. So I'm going to share a true story. Uh, it's shocking. So praise yourself for a shocking story. A couple of years ago, I was having a really fun and fascinating conversation with an individual who is the head of DE&I at a major consulting firm. Mm -hmm major consulting firm, household name consulting firm. And she had just had a milestone birthday. And in the course of talking about her birthday, she very jokingly referred to herself as being old as dirt. Oh. She didn't even know what she'd done. And of course, screw, you know, screams on Zoom, oh my God. <laughs> Um, and then she was even more shocked than I am, especially given her focus and role on DE&I. It's just like these little things that creep up. Um, and we all have to develop an awareness of it because it's at a societal level, but it's even, it's so deeply ingrained. We may have those feelings within ourselves. Uh, and to take her milestone birthday a little step further. Uh, not too long ago, I was over at the drugstore buying a birthday card. And mm -hmm. it's shocking how negative birthday cards are for people reaching milestone birthdays. If it's you know, every, every decade, it gets a little worse in terms of degrees of over the hill or, or jokes that just aren't funny about decline. Um, and and so when we talk about ageism, these are the things that we have to get over. We, we, have, a, we have the promise of a whole new old age or older age. Um, mm -hmm. We've got to create a better vision for ourselves. And so with that, if we think societally, then we also have to bring that into the workplace um, for worker, for employers to recognize the value of workers of all ages. Uh, the good news is we're making progress. This is something that we measure and um, that our team at Transamerica Institute's been very focused on over the years. And we've done a lot of work in Colorado with the University of Iowa with really promising results. However, I do have some survey findings that just help illustrate our work is not done. So in our most recent survey of employers, we asked employers if they considered themselves to be age friendly. Mm -hmm. 84% said yes. Well, we asked the same question of workers and only 65% feel that way, that their employers are age friendly. So uh, in many ways, employers might be uh, a little less age friendly than they think they are. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's work to be done. And a big part of it is raising awareness. Um, in one of your studies, um, you talked 
talked a little bit about how intergenerational workforces actually work more effectively. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, absolutely. And this is a really exciting, again, we, we have so many exciting possibilities uh, by embracing age as an element of diversity and the multi-generational workforce. And there are more and more studies coming out and employer experiences of what they're able to accomplish mm-hmm. by fostering a multi-generational workforce, and starting with just Again, education and awareness um, among generations, having training programs or employee resource groups so people can recognize and appreciate generational differences. Um, you know, it would be, you know, the worldview of a 60-something-year-old employee is likely to be very different from a 20-something or even teenage employee. And to be able to talk about those worldviews and experiences can bring people together. Um, we also see there's something that I see in our research that for me is just uh, illustrates the power of a multi-generational workforce is uh, in our survey work of workers, we ask what I call the happiness question. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as part of this question, we see that a lot of younger workers in younger generations, Gen Z and millennials, very high percentages, more than half said they often feel anxious and depressed, hmm. uh, which, is, which is really concerning uh, at, at an individual employer and societal level. But we don't see that among, say, baby boomer workers. Um, hmm. And baby boomer workers tend to be um, happier, have a more positive view of aging. Um, and they're there because they want to be there. And just having a, a team where there's, you know, this where there can be intergenerational support is just really invaluable. Older workers bring life experience and perspective, just the realities of having spent more time on the planet. And Mm -hmm. younger workers, they bring new, fresh views of the world based on where they're at. And and I I don't want to sound cliched, but it's an often used example, is younger workers tend to have uh, more up-to-date technical skills because they're just finishing their high school and college educations. Mm-hmm. But we know that technology changes pretty much every minute. Uh, so you know, older workers can share their experiences and younger workers can also impart their knowledge and technical expertise on things that older workers just may not have had access to uh, in recent years. Excellent. So Beyond the financial aspects of retirement, what do people need to do to have a healthy retirement? Is it building friendships, developing extra outside interests? What do you think goes into making a healthy retirement? All of the above. (laughs) Um, All of the above. And it's, it's so important that we realize that retirement is much, much more than a series of mathematical financial equations. Mm-hmm. And historically, that's where so much of the focus has been, and rightly so for financial planning purposes, if somebody's saving and investing and planning for retirement, mm-hmm. uh, financial aspects, of course, are tremendous. You want to reach those goals. But at the same time, you need a life plan. And there is so much research, academic research coming out, as well as just personal stories of ingredients for 
I'll call it a successful retirement. And some of it's more obvious, focusing on staying healthy. Save all in all the money in the world, but if you don't have your health, you're not going to be able to enjoy it in a way um, that you might have. Uh, but there's also all the research about friendships, social connections, and one of the biggest issues of all is having a sense of purpose. Mm. And and especially if you've been working for 30 or 40 years and you're looking at this big life change, mm-hmm. uh, going from all or nothing, because our work does bring purpose and meaning, at least for most people, as well as problem solving and social connections. Um, when you when you say goodbye to your employer and you have a whole new road ahead, mm-hmm. how are you going to spend time and what will bring you meaning and purpose? And that is a deeply, deeply personal question, mm-hmm. uh, but it is so important. That is one of the biggest drivers of happiness in retirement, enjoying retirement, uh, as well as healthy aging. When we look at younger generational cohorts, we see that millennials and Gen Z started saving earlier for retirement than baby boomers and Gen X. And Gen Z aims to retire a whole decade before baby boomers. How realistic is that goal, given that people are living longer? That Gen X or Gen Z could retire so early? Oh, okay. Uh, I love this question. And I'll, I also should add some context that I've been doing this retirement survey work for more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. So I've seen some really interesting trends over the decades. And one relates to younger generations in general, as mm-hmm. it relates to expectations of when they're going to retire. Uh, on all the years that we've done the survey, younger workers are tend to be more likely to expect to retire at an earlier age than older workers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we follow the generations and the retire the retirement expectations creeps up with the age of the workers in that generation. So as we you know tracking Gen X and boomers, they're likely to expect to retire at an older age than say Gen Z or millennials. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I'm doing this research 20 years from now, I think we'll see that uh, the same trend that when Gen Z and millennials are the oldest generations in the workforce, those coming behind them will likely have expectations of retiring younger. Unless, of course, we find a cure fate for aging by then and, and then all you know anything can happen in the next 20 years. So that's that's one big part of the trend. But we're also seeing something real, what I think is one of the most exciting aspects of our evolving retirement landscape. And that is the age people start saving. So mm-hmm. I, I think conventional wisdom is the sooner you start, the more time you have to save and the more uh, you can enjoy the potential benefits of the compounding of your investments over time. Yeah. So an early start is so helpful. When we look at workers who are saving for retirement, mm-hmm. boomers got a, a late start. 35 is the median age they started saving. Gen, Gen X, 30. Mm-hmm. Millennials started saving. Those who are saving started at 25. Mm-hmm. Gen Z, and we only have the oldest Gen Z in our survey, those over 18. So at the time of the survey, they were between 18 and 24. Mm-hmm. They started at 19. It's amazing. That's phenomenal. So if they can stay focused, 
they have realized an additional 16 year savings horizon mm -hmm. than their baby boomer counterparts who started at 35, which is phenomenal. So maybe they will be able to retire early. Who knows? <laughs> There's hope, or at least be much be, be much better prepared and with more options. Um, and I also have to comment, oh, wow, this is a really big shift. Historically, we have to put it in perspective. Mm -hmm. Workplace retirement plans have proven to be the most effective way to inspire people to save for retirement. Mm -hmm. And boomers were mid-career before 401ks came along. Mm -hmm. So they didn't exist when boomers were 19 and they were still very new when Gen X was entering the workforce. Um, they had become much more mainstream by the time that millennials entered the workforce and now Gen Z. And it may be hard to believe that 25 years ago, it was not common knowledge or conventional wisdom to factor an employer matching contribution into your total compensation package. Uh, right. That, and now it's just common sense. Of course, of course, everybody looks at the match. 25 years ago, people didn't. And that's been a big driver of savings, as well as automatic enrollment, which we have to give some, <laughs> give it to credit as well. Right. Um, so the number of people who are rely on Social Security for most of their retirement is an overwhelming number. Um, what can be done to help those folks better um, and get more secure financial footing? Uh, well, again, we're going back to we have to address Social Security's fun funding issues so that they have confidence that they will continue to receive those benefits in retirement. Not that there's been any, been any talks of benefit reductions, but the reality is until greater certainty is brought to addressing Social Security, it's going to be a source of anxiety for people, people of all ages, and especially those who are depending on it. Other things that can be done to help people is understand how they can optimize their Social Security benefits. Um, um, there are claiming strategies and and ways that people might be able to, you know, in our research, we still see the median age people start receiving Social Security is 62 or 63, which is, you know, much younger than full retirement age. And so they're getting a reduced monthly benefit. Are there ways that they can stretch their savings or keep working a bit longer so that they wait to, to, re, to their full retirement age or maybe even push it to 70? That can kind of squeeze more <laughs> income right. out, of, out of the system. For people who are already retired, mm -hmm. one of the things that and one of my big wish list items is a way to fully promote awareness and make it easy for people to find resources that are available to them. There are many programs at the federal, state, and local level and nonprofits that are providing services and supports to seniors, anything from transportation assistance, affordable housing, maybe mm -hmm. food. Um, but if you don't know about them, you're not, you may not look for them. If you're not aware of them, um, you may not even know to look for them. And it's still really hard to find them. Uh, I want to do a shout out for AARP and the National Council on Aging. They do a terrific job in terms of the supports they offer 
uh, both nationally and locally, but there's still so much opportunity, more that we could do. That is, it's not creating new programs. It's just creating a massive sort of directory or database or information exchange that connects people in need of services with the services that are available to them. Okay. And it's it's odd it doesn't exist, <laughs> you know, at least the way I envision it. And it seems like a tremendous opportunity. Um, this kind of goes along with that the earlier question, but um, people with lower incomes have less ability to save for retirement and their social security payout will be less. So there's a number of people in retirement living in poverty. What can be done to help them? Is that part of this system that your 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 wish list idea? Um, the wish list, yes. So for people who are already retired and either living in poverty or at risk of living in poverty, under a, a comprehensive understanding of the services and supports available, having easy access to those services and supports, as well as an analysis where there could be gaps that should be addressed that hmm. could help improve their improve their quality of life. Um, it, you know, I think, and it's something that we can look at broadly nationally, but also very importantly, locally. And so that's one aspect of it. For okay. people who are currently lower income workers, not retired yet in the workforce, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things, the guiding principles that I hold dear is the single most important ingredient for retirement security is access to meaningful employment mm -hmm. with fair and competitive wages and benefits. Um, and when we look at lower income workers, they have less income, less income available to save, and then they have what I'll call a double whammy. They're less likely to be offered retirement benefits by their employers. So not only do they have less income to save, they have less access to the system. And that's something that we've got to address. We've got to ensure that all workers have the access to save for retirement in the workplace. Um, we do have some good news from Secure 2.0, and that is new savers match, a government matching contributions for lower income workers um, who save for retirement, they're not required to have a tax liability the way the old uh, savers credit works, which is still still good for the next uh, three years. Uh, but starting in 2027, they'll have a full matching contribution from the federal government into the retirement accounts for what they save. And this is a really important step in terms of helping level our retirement system and making it more equitable. Still more work to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something to be excited about. So experts often say that the way to get a more secure retirement financial footing is to save more or work longer. And how realistic is that given that life sometimes gets in the way of those plans? Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> it sure does. And what we see in our research is uh, our survey of workers, and this is workers of all ages, it, changes, it, it skews even higher with older workers of those planning to, to extend their working years. Uh, as we look across the workforce, almost half uh, expect to retire after age 65, 
or do not plan to retire. And more than half expect to continue working in retirement. Uh, and I'll point out that retirement and work are no longer mutually exclusive. Uh, well over half of workers expect to work at least, plan to work at least part-time in retirement. Uh, and you know, the financial experts will tell you, and even common sense, more time in the workforce is more time to save and more time to bridge a savings gap. Then there's life's unforeseen circumstances. And, and it's so important to have a backup plan. Our research of retirees over the years find that uh, you know, many, more than half, retire sooner than expected. Mm -hmm. And it's often due to either employment issues or health issues. Uh, but we see something else. So that, that's the big yellow lights flashing. That's the big reality check that you're asking me about. Yeah. Is it's, it's one thing to have expectations and plans around working longer, but you've got to have those contingency plans and backup plans in the event that disaster strikes. The other thing that we see in our research is we ask people the proactive steps that they're taking so that they can work as long as they want and need. Mm -hmm. Now things like focusing on their health or keeping job skills up to date, mm -hmm. networking and meeting new people. Um, and many, many workers are not yet taking the adequate steps that are going to help protect both their health and their future employability. Okay. So if you, if you are planning to work longer, you also have to be investing in yourself, your health and your employability right now. And it's a continued investment over the course of your, year, your career until you're ready to retire. Okay. We wanna take a, a question from a listener. Um, there's a question from Neil who said, how likely is it that Social Security will go away? Unlikely. Okay. We hear a lot of conversations and con rightful concern about the trust fund, you know, the estimated depletion. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not going bankrupt. It just means that there's less money going into the trust fund than paying out in terms of benefits. So essentially, conceptually, I'd say if we need to come up with a balanced budget so that social security, so that it's, uh, so that we can ensure that our country can ensure that people receive their promised benefits um, and help address that funding shortfall. It's not the same as going bankrupt and it's really important that people understand that. Okay. Um, we have a question from Angela who wants to follow up on the secure 2.0 questions and answers. What are some of the provisions that will help everyday investors and savers? And um, is there anything else that in Secure 2.0 that people should look for who are just everyday people? Uh, there's lots of things. <laughs> and, and we'll see how they ultimately unfold with mm -hmm. the implementation of various provisions. But one is so, and I, I'm going to look at this from an age perspective. Um, because there's some things that can be especially helpful for younger workers, as well as some things that can be helpful for older workers, depending on your life phase. Mm -hmm. One of the provisions that I'm very enthusiastic about is the ability for employers to match student loan repayments. Mm -hmm. We know that people are graduating from college with increasing student debt which was not experienced by older generations. And they're entering the workforce with you know, you know, student debt, 
Mm -hmm. covering their living expenses um, and wanting to get started saving for retirement. Many may not be able to, and build emergency savings, which is super important. So, so this idea that if a worker offered a plan is just can't afford to save for retirement because they're paying off their student loans, mm -hmm. they can still benefit from a matching contribution into the plan from their employer uh, uh, recognizing those student loan repayments. And this is kind of a best world's thing because it helps them start saving for retirement at an age where they have this really long-term savings mm -hmm. horizon. It may not be saving full blast the way you know, people could later, but it's getting money into those retirement accounts that start growing while they're addressing their other financial priorities. So uh, we'll see how it rolls out, but I see tremendous potential there. I touched on emergency savings. That's another thing that has the potential to help everyday, you know, everyday retirement savers and everyday people. And something that I've seen over the years and our research has found, many people lack, many workers lack adequate emergency savings. Mm -hmm. uh, and in some ways, they're doing a better job saving for retirement, which mm -hmm. is a little bit counterintuitive. And Secure Secure 2.0 has a couple of provisions that I think are really important. One is employer plan sponsors could mm -hmm. create an emergency savings account as part of the retirement plan so that, that participant plan participants are saving for both and have access to a certain amount of emergency funds. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the even more important provision is recognizing that life happens and that where we're at today and what we see repeatedly in our research is uh, a worker has inadequate emergency savings, disaster mm -hmm. strikes. They need to pay for this. Their options are not great. Could be high interest rate credit card debt. Mm -hmm loan from the bank of family and friends, which could have even worse terms than high interest rate credit card debt or tapping into the retirement savings. None of these are great alternatives. And in many cases, tapping into their savings is their best alternative. And however, it can severely impede the growth of their savings by the time they reach retirement age. So, and then, uh, which is also particularly onerous, is there has been this early withdrawal penalty of 10% uh, if you're mm -hmm. under age 59 and a half. And that is, it, it, I am, it, it's going away for for valid what are considered emergency situations and i think that's terrific news uh it's something that's um been very troubling to me that existed um take i'm gonna take off my research hat for a quick minute and put on my real life hat my reality hat when i was working uh for a retirement plan you know in the record keeping involved in record keeping operation and one of my jobs during the Great Recession, you know, 2008, 2009 and such, was reviewing the paperwork for uh, hardship withdrawals, ensuring mm -hmm. the paperwork was in order. And it, it was just devastating. People had either lost their job or had a financial mm -hmm. emergency. They were on the brink of losing their home. So they were taking mm -hmm. a withdrawal out of their retirement account and getting hit with a 10% penalty for doing so. They were already going to have to pay taxes on the deferred 
deferred aspects of the savings, but mm-hmm. a percent penalty punishment for hitting hard times just um, just seemed counterproductive for everyone. Uh, you know, it made it even harder for them to navigate a difficult situation. Um, it worsened their ability, what retirement savings they could maybe hold on to uh, mm-hmm. and the future investment growth and may have given people you know, a really bad experience that could prevent them from saving for retirement in the future. So for me, it is extremely welcome news um, that that 10% penalty um, for emergencies is going away. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. That's all we have time for for today. Thank you so much for being here. And we hope that everyone listens tomorrow to our next episode. FCA Director of Digital Assets, Matthew Long, and FN Online Editor, Justin Cash, will discuss what the future holds for a crypto rulebook. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.